Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Today we're going to be talking about the year 2004 in the Oscar race when Million Dollar Baby took home Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor, beating The Aviator and Sideways mainly. And um, the, the year was notable for two reasons. The first was that in 2003, the, the Academy had decided to push the date back by one month. So the Oscars were no longer going to be held in March. They were going to be held in February. And though it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, now that it's 10 years later, you see that it did have an incredibly dramatic effect on the Oscar race and how, and how it's run. And now things have changed so completely that you can't imagine a year like Million Dollar Baby. This was the last time when a late-breaking film kind of swooped in and, and won the Oscar. So, um, because leading up to the race, The Aviator, which would have been Martin Scorsese's first major Oscar win, and Sideways, which was, was winning all the critics' awards. And, and both films split the guilds. The Producers' Guild went for The Aviator, and the Screen Actors' Guild went for Sideways. But the DGA went for Million Dollar Baby, and people saw it. It was one of those experiences where you see the movie, you're going to vote for the movie, you know, period. So it, he, he easily won that. His second Best Picture, Best Director win since Unforgiven, and Hilary Swank's second uh, Best Actress win. So... You've said before, Sasha, many times that, that it seems like that in recent years, and I think it really has been in the past decade, that the that the Academy has almost like tried to um, sidestep or detour around audiences so they don't have to consider audience opinion. They don't have to consider box office. They keep the they keep their best picture choices uh, in-house really tightly to really close to their vest. And so people, a lot of times don't get, get don't uh, audience reaction doesn't, doesn't factor into it so much. And I think 2004 was really the first year that that, that was really apparent to me because in a lot of parts of the country, million dollar baby did not even start screening in theaters until the end of January, mid February. Mm. And by that time it was almost a done deal. By, by the middle of Jan- by the middle of February, especially by the time people were finally starting to see a million dollar baby show up in the multiplexes, it was already assured to win. You know, and that had never happened before in my experience. I'd never seen that happen before, mm. where a movie can almost like tr- does an end run around, tries to sneak in at the last minute and make a big impression on Academy members before anyone else has ever got had a chance to see it. Right. But it still was the kind of movie that, and still is the kind of movie that you can put anybody in front of, and they'll respond to it accordingly. Like, um, that's the case with Argo, even, in 2012, or 2000, yeah, 2012. Any movie like that, like Million Dollar Baby had the goods, and, and, and leading all leading up to that, we all thought that it was Aviator or Sideways, and I'll never forget hearing from David Poland, actually, I think he was the first person who said he saw Million Dollar Baby... And it was going to win. And from that point on, there was no question what was going to win the Oscar. It, it, they, things got a little confused when the Producers Guild and you know went for, for The Aviator. But there was a lot of weird stuff happening at the same time. Like um, The Aviator was very heavy on technology. But really, when you get down to it, you're looking at three different types of um, Trajectories and, and mainly sideways and the aviator fall into the same similar category, which is 
a faulty hero, a flawed man, an anti-hero even, a failure at, at what he wanted to accomplish. Million Dollar Baby is, is heroic, right? The, the uh, Clint Eastwood is a, is a heroic character, and, and uh, Hilary Swank is an incredibly sympathetic heroic character. And if you've been listening to our podcast and you've been following along on the Oscar race, you know that that is the thing that wins the Oscar nine times out of ten. Heroism. You know, that's what people like. And with the with a few exceptions here and there of, like, No Country for Old Men, which is debatable. Um, the Departed, again, debatable, although Leonardo DiCaprio was, was pretty much a heroic character. And The Hurt Locker, where the, the lead character was like a, a war machine and, and he was a complicated lead. For the most part, they go for heroic, sympathetic, likable protagonists and that's what they like and million dollar baby had that in spades what million dollar baby did have though that kind of surprised me for an oscar and it's not typical of an oscar winner is it's such a downer it has such a downer ending to it and really the the, the, the little tacked on ending that that was a little bit of uplift for for clint eastwood's character at the very end where he finally gets away from the boxing world and he goes in and 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 operates at a little diner he has a happy ending so good for him but i felt really almost manipulated and really beat up by the fact that we're made to love hillary swing's character and then we see her put through the ringer so badly and we feel just like it's almost it was almost like i don't want to say i don't want to say torture porn because those kinds of phrases just i don't like them but it, it did at the time it felt to me like that it uh, just imagine, for instance, if they if they took a dog or a cat and put it in a burlap sack and then beat the sack with a hammer, oh, people would just be screaming that you can't do that to an animal. But that's basically what they did to Hillary Swank's yeah, character in the movie. Right. They make you love her and then they destroy her. Right. It's important to remember, though, that there was controversy. The whole issue of the right to die is a huge, mm. to this day, is still a huge deal. Right. I think it's it's actually kind of significant that a, a major Hollywood movie addressed that that issue and it's it's not my pick for sure of the of even even the nominees it's not my pick but it's it's probably one of my i my experience with it is a lot different than everybody else's i think a lot of people look at it as the as the oscar asshole and it and it ruined everybody's favorite oscar choices i didn't see it until much later and i and i and I can't prove this. I've looked for the archive on the internet, but I can't find it. But um, for some reason, I seem to remember Nikki Fink had a huge. Uh, she I don't know if she hated Eastwood or if she just hated the movie or what, but she was really snotty to it, and she totally spoiled the ending of the film in an in a totally innocuous. Um, box office report in LA Weekly this was way before she was doing Deadline Hollywood it was it, she was writing for LA Weekly and she spoiled the ending of the film before I had seen it and so I didn't bother to see it for a couple of years after it had, had come and gone and by the time I saw it I was actually surprised at um, at how well I liked it it's not it's not something that I need to see again anytime soon I didn't watch it again this time for the podcast but um, it's one of my it's it's up there with I think letters letters from Iwo Jima of, of, of the better post uh, unforgiven Clint movies in my opinion yeah I mean I don't I don't have a beef with it anymore I did at the time like I say because I was so for most of my Oscar career, I've been, I was locked, until The Departed, I was really locked into this notion that Scorsese needs to win an Oscar. And that, that dominated a lot of what I wrote and what I did and what I thought. And so anything that was going to come up against that angered me, and especially if it was Clint Eastwood, who I considered to be kind of a, uh, you know, someone who really kind of got an easy ride 
in Hollywood. But <clears throat> and he'd already been well rewarded, and so had Hillary Swank. Yeah, right, and exactly. However, I will say that that you know some Oscar Oscar winning movies um, often are, are very likable films, entertaining films. They have to be because they win a consensus vote. And so usually you're not seeing a divisive movie that wins. You're seeing a movie that a lot of people like. And there's a lot to like in it. You're not breathing right. That's why you're pimp. So it's your birthday, huh? How old does that make you? I'm 32, Mr. Dunn. And I'm here celebrating the fact that I spent another year scraping dishes and waitressing, which is what I've been doing since 13. And according to you, I'll be... 37, before I can even throw a decent punch. Which, after working this feedback for a while, out of nowhere, I now realize maybe God's simple truth. Other truth is, my brother's in prison. My sister cheats on welfare by pretending one of her babies is still alive. My daddy's dead, and my mama weighs 312 pounds. If I was thinking straight, I'd go back home, find a used trailer, buy a deep fryer and some Oreos. The problem is, this is the only thing I ever felt good doing. If I'm too old for this, then I got nothing. Is that enough truth to suit you? This your speed bag? It's yours behind the counter. Wish I could say I wore it out. Just hold it. Hold it. I'll show you a few things, and then we'll get you a trainer. No. Sorry. You're in a position to negotiate? Yes, sir. Because I know if you train me right, I'm going to be a champ. I've seen you looking at me. Yeah, out of pity. Don't you say that. Don't you say that if it ain't true. I want a trainer. I don't want charity, and I don't want favors. If you're not interested, then I got more celebrating to do. Stop, stop, stop. God damn stop. The hell are you doing? Okay, if I'm going to take you on... You won't never regret it. Look, just listen to me. If I take you on... I promise I'll work so hard. God, this is a mistake already. Mm Mm-mm. I'm listening, boss. If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, uh, yes, Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. That's all I ask. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. All righty. We got a deal. No, not quite. I'm going to teach you how to fight. Now we'll get you a manager and I'm off down the road. Well, I hate to argue with you, but... Don't argue with me. That's the only way we're doing it. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. I don't care. You get your teeth knocked out. I don't care. (laughs) I don't want to hear about it either way. That's just the way it's going to be. It's the only way I'll do it. You know, a lot to like. Um, she's great. Hillary Swank is great in that part. She's fucking great. So is Morgan Freeman. So is Clint Eastwood. And it's a really likable story with characters you, you really care for and feel for. And I had no idea at the time that it would be the last time a movie that starred a woman would win Best Picture or get even 
anywhere near winning Best Picture. They don't make w- movies about women anymore. So at the time, I wasn't even thinking on those lines. Things started to get really bad uh, in the ensuing years. Uh, the date change was part of it. The uh, the rush to, to judgment, to, to find the best, often um, centered around male-driven uh, films. And Hollywood itself and audiences, it all started to go that way. At that time, we didn't know that was the direction it was headed in. So we had the luxury of complaining and hating on Hillary Swank and uh, saying, oh, Hillary Swank has two Oscars and Annette Bening doesn't have any, you know, for instance, because it was always Annette Bening versus Hillary Swank. But I look at it so much differently now from the, you know, in my rearview mirror, having lived what I've lived through and seen how the Oscar race and, and how the film industry has changed and... So I, I can't really slag on Million Dollar Baby anymore. I just can't. Just like I can't slag on Chicago because they're so rare uh, compared to what you see now that um, that they stand out. Uh, now, do I think another movie should was better? Yes. Sideways to me was much better. Um, Sideways is a movie I watch at least once a year. I love it to death. And uh, The Aviator is, is exceptional in that Scorsese way of this is a genius work. <laughs> Is it going to appeal to a consensus? No. Is it going to win Best Picture? Not a chance. But is it a work of a genius? Absolutely. So I guess you have to look at it, the Oscar race, in two different ways. Good movie, great movie, Oscar movie. You know. Sometimes they line up. This year they didn't. Right. Another thing about Scorsese, too, is in another thing we talked about before, a lot of times directors who've had uh, outstanding stellar careers – competing against themselves and they have to they have to surpass what they've done before and as much as i like the aviator and as much as i think it's probably it's definitely top 10 scorsese i wouldn't say it's top five and so it it, 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 they look at you you look at and a voter might be looking at scorsese's past career and look at uh raging bull or goodfellas and or taxi driver and say well Aviator is nowhere near as good as those three movies. And so how would, how could we pass him up for those movies and now award him for The Aviator, which is really like right. second-tier Scorsese? To some people, they may say it's second-tier. And so they, weighed, they had to wait for him to, to regain the stature with the same kind of movie he had done before with The Departed before they were ready to give him the Oscar, Yeah, possibly. I, mean, we... I think the answer to those people is that you don't compare him to the films that he's already made. You compare it to the other films that he's competing against, and it was easily one of the top two or three films of the year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree it, with it you. It should they have been should. A, a slam dunk. But you're right. People... Either they're fans of Scorsese and they're they're picky because, you know, not every movie can be Raging Bull or Taxi mm-hmm. Driver, or they're naysayers and they they tend to be critical of them like so many people were with with wolf of wall street this year yeah i'm trying to i'm just trying to think of why the what would have been going through voters minds why they why they wouldn't choose the aviator and that's that's the only kind of possibility that i can come up with is they may look at the aviator and say well it's it's not up to the scorsese standards it's that but it was also like i say it's it's the unlikable character it's it's Mm -hmm. it's howard hughes as a rich millionaire and who gives a shit you know, he is likable, though. I me. think so, but but that doesn't mean that they're going to feel. Look, when they put their vote forward, they often put put it forward for for characters that they feel sorry for, or that they think their vote will make a difference for. Uh, the perfect example of this is, is Slumdog Millionaire mm-hmm. um, and Million Dollar Baby. Like, if you feel sympathetic towards these characters and you feel protective of them, then you want to vote for them. I think you see with with great works, Citizen Kane being one of them, Social Network being another. Um, it's the very rare All About Eve, which did win Best Picture, which was about 
unlikable, flawed characters. Generally speaking, in the Oscar race, that doesn't fly. They don't like Howard Hughes. You know, they don't feel like they need that he needs their vote. You know, they don't look at Mm -hmm. it like that. They look at when they vote. It's sort of like they're voting for who needs their vote. Who do they feel sorry for? Who can they give their vote to? Who had to struggle? Which character had to struggle the most and which had to overcome the most obstacles? Which character is is the underdog? their films and not remember them in their time they're just going to look at the movies themselves and you're going to see a, a level of focus and concentration and artistic daring that you rarely see in cinema if ever scorsese tries so hard he he really just throws everything on the wall in such a unique way vibrant alive you know yeah, of course, boss. Cigar, cigarettes, Simpson. Shake that thing! Thelma, I thought you were over at the Brown Derby with uh, Trixie. Uh, no, no, Teresa. Margaret, yeah. Margaret, exactly. What happened to Margaret? She lost her shoes. Thank now, God right? that settled. I'm sorry. Thelma, this is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. Cigarette? Oh, no. Thanks, I don't smoke. Just hitting on all six cylinders, aren't you? My God. <laughs> would you do me a favor and just... Would you just smile for me one time? Just once. <sighs> yeah, yeah, you see, you got a short upper lip. Makes for a much nicer smile. <laughs> see, I wonder what gives a beautiful woman like you pleasure. You say you're just standing there, right? And I... I just touch it, just just like this. See my fingertips. I mean, do you do you like that? Do you? See, I want to learn what pleases you. I want to learn everything about you. Would you let me do that? Would you give me that job? I'm off in a half an hour. Well, I'm in room uh, 217. 217. See you there. <laughs> even in Gangs of New York, even in The Aviator, you know, his worst movie is better than most of the most of the films that get put out in Hollywood that are utterly forgettable. And you have to admire the effort, you know, and just go, wow, he's, he's taking chances and and the older he gets and he's still taking chances. You know, he's not, he he could have been phoning it in for years and just cashing paychecks and he's never done that. He's always chosen challenging projects. He's always done things that, that allow him to explore cinema in new ways. Right. Yeah. So he did that with Aviator, and, and uh, you know, one thing I do remember about the Aviator, and we can know this about the Academy, and we should remember it, they don't like technology-heavy movies that don't make a lot of money, you know? Like, they, they'll make an exception if the movie has made a shitload of money. I don't think the Aviator did. I forget. what Was it $100 million it made, or does anybody remember? I'm taking a look right now. It made $102 million. And it cost a lot, right? Yeah, it cost 110. Okay, so no movie that ever loses money is ever going to win Best Picture. That's you got to start there, right? And the second thing is they really look down their nose at movies that don't make a huge profit. Like they like they prefer movies that cost around 15 to 20 million 
and make about 80 to 100 million. To them, that's a success to the Oscar voters. And I, I've rarely, the only movie that I can think of that won Best Picture in the last 20 years or so that didn't have that was The Departed, which I think cost 90 and made 100 or so. So it made a profit, it made a small profit, it didn't lose money. But you can't lose money and win the Oscar. You can't. Isn't going to happen. I think the story might have been about the aviator at the time was the money, the box office. And worldwide, The Departed did actually really well. I mean, it, may, it more than tripled its its um, budget and worldwide earnings. And so it, it definitely, Departed made a, 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 not a huge profit, but it made a tidy profit, whereas The Aviator barely broke even. Right. And they don't like that at yeah. all. So... That'll tell you right away if a movie's going to win or not. I just want to clarify, too. I wasn't slagging. I wasn't in any way slagging on The Aviator. I love The Aviator, and it just barely misses my top five Scorsese movies. And absolutely what you said is true, Craig. It's the only way that The Aviator doesn't stack up to Goodfellas or Raging Bull or or, or um, Taxi Driver is just because those movies are incredible, top-notch masterpieces you know, of all time. And so... Very few movies that, that anybody ever makes could live up to those three movies. So it would be really hard for the aviator to to crack into that into that that level, you know. But I have a lot of respect for the aviator. I, I like it a lot, and I've seen it so many times. That's another thing about Million Million Dollar Baby. And one thing that I like to look for in a Best Picture is the rewatchability factor. And I can't imagine that I would ever want to rewatch Million Dollar Baby again. I mean, I, 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 I just, it doesn't interest me. I don't want to, I'm not slagging on Million Dollar Baby either because I, I know a lot of people really are really fond of that movie, really have a lot of affection for that movie. And that, and I can understand why, but just, I personally, I would never watch it again. Me either. I probably wouldn't either. I was just defending it because most people, most people who follow Oscars seem to not like it very much. And just to be clear, I wasn't calling you out for not liking Aviator enough. Actually, who I was thinking of was all the people who were slagging on Wolf of Wall Street, but that was this year and not mm-hmm. 2004. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've just right. had it with I've had it with uh, Scorsese skeptics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, I would I would say for me, Wolf of Wall Street and the Aviator are like neck and neck with each other. That's probably. In my number six or seven position for Scorsese, they're so similar in ways. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, obviously they're both Leonardo DiCaprio, but they're also both about strongly driven and successful to a degree people. But I still, and maybe that's why oh. I found uh, Howard Hughes to be more um, to be more uh, sympathetic because compared to Jordan Belfort, he was he he was trying to do good things. He was trying to. To he was a visionary that was trying to was kind of fighting his own craziness to do good things in the world. A lot of it had to do with his ego, but he he was he didn't seem like an evil person. He was no. born rich, which makes him automatically you know not necessarily rootable. But he he was kind of a fascinating guy. It's obvious that Jordan Belfort, the goal, his goal, his his what drives him is money, and that's right. not what drove Howard Hughes at all. Money was just a side effect of what you want to fly the fastest planes, make the biggest yeah. movies, and and bang the most beautiful women. Yeah, yeah. I love the Martin Scorsese and and um, Leonardo DiCaprio collaboration. I, I love it. I love where it has gone and where where he's taken it. I think that um, I have to put. Wolf of Wall Street way up there. I mean, Scorsese is my favorite director, so I have to, mm-hmm. but I have to say that I'd go, if I was going to do top five, I'd probably go, um, oh, tough one, right? So I'd go, it is, uh, yeah. 
raging by just raging bull barely edges out taxi driver for number one for me and taxi driver would be number two um then i'd probably go with goodfellas i suppose and then king of comedy would be number four for me um and then number five would be probably wolf of wall street and then i'd go six would be the departed um Seven would be Hugo, right? Like Hugo's up mm-hmm. way up there with me. Uh, and then, um, like, uh, let's see what else. What am I forgetting? I like all his movies, by the way. These are just my, like, top favorites of his. That's why it's too hard for me to rank them. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Raging Bull and, and Taxi Driver, those are, like, unequivocal films. There's, there's no way to, to top them. But... Within I'm that, glad. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I'm just saying. Within that, I, I I count a lot of his recent movies as my favorites: The Departed, Hugo, and and Wolf of Wall Street. To me, being just utter masterpieces. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the Leo Scorsese collaboration because I think, especially when they first started working together, and they've done it a couple of times, and maybe even by the third time, um, or maybe it's the, just the, the first two times, people still seem to be comparing it to, to Scorsese De Niro. And it was a totally different kind of yeah. vibe and a totally different collaboration. And I, and I think it was totally underestimated. When you, If you go back and keep an open mind and you go back and watch um, Gangs of New York and The Aviator both, which were... Um, they're great and and i think he gets better with each one that's the amazing thing and he's better and he's different and i think he's i think i mentioned this the other week about how he's an actor that we just don't take seriously um and we don't but he if if he deserves being taken seriously at all it's for all five of the movies that he's done for scorsese absolutely i mean you look at the the closest comparison i can think of is Hitchcock with Cary Grant and with Jimmy Stewart and the movies that he made with both of them are so totally different because yeah when that's an a great act- comparison yeah when an actor is the muse of of the director they, they go in a different direction and with with Leonardo DiCaprio um as a De Niro he kind of De Niro was sort of a monster you know mm-hmm. um even even Rupert Pupkin uh, as funny as he is, is kind of a monster. You know, he's scary. He's terrifying. <laughs> he, he, he was uncontrollable. You didn't know what he was going to do. Yeah. I mean, he's funny and everything hapless until he kidnaps him and hold, holds a gun, you know. So it's like, yes, the gun isn't loaded, I believe. And um, he's, you know, it it's silly. But the point of that movie was that it could it could turn pretty quickly into, into violence. And, uh, and then he's a literal monster in Cape Fear. Oh, yeah, he's great in yeah. Cape Fear. Yeah. Fantastic. And he, he kind of is in Taxi Driver, too, depending on mm-hmm. your perspective. Yeah, yeah he really definitely. brings out that ugliness. With with Leo, um, it's more like Jimmy Stewart, where I think um, Hitchcock loved bouncing off this idea of the everyman. He really liked uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart's kind of normal, safe uh, persona that everybody everybody trusted. He, you know, he's always George Bailey. So in a way, he's never going to twist. He's always going to be good at his core. And and in a, in a lot of ways, uh, other than Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, which could argue, be argued that he was still kind of good at his core in that movie, but most of the movies with with that he's done with Scorsese have been have come out of a vulnerability, and uh, not a, not necessarily an everyman, but a vulnerable man with with goodness at his core in these kind of crazy situations and watching those situations play against his face, the canvas of his face, and, and seeing where it goes. So beautiful. 
you know. But and it is very different than De Niro, and he couldn't do what he does with Leo with De Niro because they're just different. You know, De Niro's the monster; he's not um, the vulnerable everyman. But but uh, he's, he's exploring different different aspects of humanity with with Leo, and doing it no less brilliantly, just differently than than De Niro did. I mean, it's it's. I would hate to compare any actor to De Niro because he's. He's our generation's, um, what's his name? <laughs> He's Brando? so good, I can't remember his name. Yes, Marlon Frickin Brando. Oh, God, the best. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it, I, I would never say that, that DiCaprio is De Niro, but he's... He's way better than the credit that he's ever been given. Can we go back into the seventies again? <laughs> Another thing too about the, you know, really the seventies. Wow, and and that was really and that's another thing about De Niro is that he he really peaked when he was with Scorsese, and then after he stopped having Scorsese as as his coach, he really he really I think his career oh, yeah. took a took a really a wrong turn. And he and it's fine. I mean, everyone deserves to like just make a bunch of money. And make a bu- make movies for the money and for the fun of it, but just to do that over and over and over, and and it's been just been years and years since he's made a movie that's lived up to his early career. But you can't say that about DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. He has had a solid career from beginning to end, and I don't see him at the end of his career making you know, the Meet the Fockers type movies. He'll <laughs> never do that. Oh, poor Leo! Like I just had such a different um, impression of him after spending. You know, observing him at, at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, both at the screening of, uh, or at his getting his award, and, and then at the VIP party after. He's so, what a sweet guy. You know, what a humble, sweet, unassuming person he was, just kind of standing there and looking down, you know, and not wanting to make eye contact. He just looked so shy to me. And then I see that these, these videos of, uh, of him dancing at Coachella are, are like making the rounds and people are making a big deal about it. I just thought, man, he can't even just be Leo. He can't just be out. You know, he has to be this kind of crazy freak, you know, that people are, mm. are looking at all the time. Amazing I, that I, he can come across as being relatively normal. I think people forget that he, he's been uh, a star of sorts since he was a little kid. He was in that, um, there was a crappy family sitcom that he was on for a little while. And then he was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape as a very young man and Basketball Diaries. And, he's, and the, this is all before Titanic. Yeah. And so he spent his whole life basically in the public eye, being at relative degrees of fame and having his entire life, you know, under a magnifying glass. And once he did Titanic, then it just became insane. You know, it was like now he was suddenly under the microscope. Right. I just I was struck by him. I've seen a lot of a lot of celebrities in these scenarios, and and you know, um, I was just struck by his humility. Like he really he really looked to me like just a nice person. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't say that about everybody. They they have this. Famous people tend to have this thing. You know, even Jared Leto has it. It's gorgeous. That's why they're famous. Yeah, and then they're, they're famous, so they have to learn how to block out the world. You know, but to me, and I can see why Scorsese likes to play with this with him. He is such a blank canvas, but he's so his sweetness and his his vulnerability comes out when he's just sitting there. He just looks like a normal guy. You know. It was really weird and odd. I, I've never really seen that in a famous person before, especially someone that famous. Yeah. I get the impression that the nature of their collaboration between DiCaprio and, and Scorsese is a lot different than the nature of the collaboration between De Niro and Scorsese. I really do feel like Scorsese 
was 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 able to coach De Niro into doing things that he couldn't do with with any other director. Right. Whereas, and I don't to take another swing of what I was trying to say before about the difference between uh, DiCaprio and De Niro. You know, De Niro has made undeniably ten fantastic masterpiece movies, but he's also made fifty movies that are complete shit. You know, I would say it is yeah. a, a movie that I would never watch, you know, but DiCaprio has not. He's made he's made 10 really fantastic, great movies and he's made 40 other movies that are really, really very good. Yeah. He's made very few bad movies in his entire career. He doesn't really and, sell out the way other the, no, he, he's made really don't the movies of his that I don't like are not because of him. Generally, he's always and he's generally always good in them. Yeah, he's made really good choices. And I believe he's I believe he's brought projects to Scorsese like Wolf of Wall Street and maybe I think like Shutter Island where Scorsese, where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has had more of an active role in producing the movies, right? And bringing and and, and making the projects happen. Whereas I don't get that impression that De Niro ever did that so much with Scorsese. Mm, Right, right. He has plays a really active role in making the projects happen. Whereas De Niro is just sort of uh, along for the writer. He's, he's a, he's, he's the hired gun. Yeah, I think that for them, it's just it's just frankly hard to turn down the money. Like, I don't think Leo cares that much about money. I think he's got enough, and he doesn't need yeah. any more. Mm-hmm. De Niro seems to want more. Like, he's always doing the paycheck actor thing, and I haven't. I agree with you. I have not seen him do anything good since he worked with Scorsese, and I think that that's because Scorsese has such high demands from his actors. He's not going to let you just phone that shit in, right? You know, never. De Niro's had his moments, but not not high profile ones. Yeah, I get none of the none of the titles are coming to mind. But he, every now and then, every few years, he'll turn up in something that makes me think he still cares. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but, but it's not. But it's not a lead role. A lot of times, it's not even a, a not a lead role. Oh, right, they have been right. the ones that I'm thinking of in Kent oh, yeah. name. I didn't yeah. like him in Silver Linings Playbook. Not to go back to that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I liked him. I liked him okay in the first Meet the Fockers movie, Meet, Meet the Parents. Like I thought he was really mm-hmm. funny in that, but the subsequent ones were just like, oh god, really? I'm always oh. surprised when these actors who make so much money need money. Like I, I was listening today to a Julia Roberts voiceover for a commercial, and I was thinking. Really, Julia, with all that, the millions that you made on all those movies, you have to do voiceovers now? You know, did all the money just go? Or do they just want I to don't keep... No, I think that they still have a huge amount of money, but there's some people that just want to have just a, a lot... A lot, a lot more. They they don't need any more money. It's not that they're they've run out of money that they have to take these jobs, but they just like to have the extra. You know, and for they're, whatever they're not reason, they're making it in as fast as they used to, and they have a certain yeah. lifestyle to keep up. Right, That's probably that. Yeah. yeah, and also. They want to stay relevant, but I don't see how doing a car commercial makes you relevant. You know, freaking insurance company commercials. Insurance company, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like no, it shittiest... always disturbs me when I hear those famous voices, like Susan Sarandon, or even uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Who's the guy in Sideways? I can't. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Yeah, yeah, he's doing commercials now too, isn't he? They all or someone do. who sounds yeah. very much like him is doing an insurance commercial. And they the all one do that, it. The ones that freak me out are when uh, John Hamm or Sadie's Benz commercials come on during yeah. Mad during Men. During Mad Men, I know. Because he, he plays an ad man in the show, and now he's doing ads I know. during the show, and my brain explodes. It's so funny <laughs> how people don't really think about that. Like they're watching a show about advertisers kind of manipulating the American public, and then they they show a commercial that does exactly that. You know, exactly what, not even just the John Hamm ones, but every commercial that they play after that is like, these were some madmen who who came up with these uh, 
these 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 ad campaigns and you're watching it right before your very eyes. And the John Hamm commercials, especially, they're they're even scripted to sound like the Mad Men, to sound like a, yeah, a sound Don like Draper a pitch, to, to sound like Don Draper pitch. Exactly. Yeah. I know it's weird. <laughs> it's it's isn't bizarre. It? It's crazy. So meta. It's so meta, meta, but it it works. You know, that's yeah, the scary it does. Part. And I think that that's one of the reasons why AMC really uh, was able to throw their weight behind Mad Men in the early years because they could see that the way that it was going to tie in commercially for them was going to be really profitable. Probably they probably knew. You know. But um, let's talk about some other movies in 2004. It's not our favorite year. We'll just come clean on that. Yeah, what's not favorite for me about it is the same thing that I was feeling starting to feel discouraged about a lot of years in the in the in the, in the past ten years. Is is my favorite movies were so overlooked or barely got any attention at all? And it, like Sideways and Eternal Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine, and. Um, what else was it? Hotel Rwanda, for instance. I, I can't yeah. believe that the Hotel Rwanda didn't get more attention that year. No, but that was one of the ones that, like, um, I would have to say that I was actually pleased with the attention it did get because that was a that was a hardcore advocacy film on my mm-hmm. end. You know, like I really was hitting that hard to get them to get people to pay attention. So when I saw that it got any any attention at all, it was it pleased me that it. That's but good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one thing that um, didn't he get nominated for actor? Don Cheadle. Cheadle got nominated yeah. for actor and, mm-hmm. and well deserved. Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I think he was him and um, Sophie Okaneda were the two two best parts of the film. I'm not crazy about the movie. It's a good movie and an important movie about an important subject that's even more relevant now on the 20th anniversary of, of when that whole thing went down. But it, it, there was something a little creaky about it to me, a, a little too, I don't know, there was, I, it's hard to explain. It was a little stage-bound, but the performances were fantastic, and I'm glad that, that um, was she nominated? Yeah, they were both nominated. Sophia Canada yeah. was yeah. nominated as well. It would have made an excellent HBO movie. Right. You know, it exactly. has that has that has that sort of uh, quality visually and production wise and everything. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just it just didn't quite reach that the the level of an Oscar uh, Oscar Best Picture movie. If it had had a bigger budget, it may have. But that was a movie that um, Taylor Hackford had tried to get funding for for like fifteen years and couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. uh, or no 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 I'm sorry I'm 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 thinking of Ray. I, I confused the two black movies like the bad person who confuses two black people for all looking the same. <laughs> <laughs> Send your cards and letters to Craig. Thank Sam Rubin. <laughs> Total Sam Rubin moment. Thank you very much. But you know, um, yes, indeed, and yay for for Ray and for Taylor Taylor Hackford on that. Um, Finding Neverland is the one that stands out to me as the one that shouldn't have been in there. Um, fine, whatever. Mark Forster, I like him as a director, but that was not a Best Picture. I don't think it should have been nominated. Give me. I can totally see why it did, though. Yeah, but give me uh, Eternal Sunshine or uh, Eternal Sunshine or um, Kinsey. Kinsey was the sort of the biggest disappointment of that year. I thought that it didn't get in. I thought it was a really, really good film and very brave and daring and interesting. And uh, directed by Bill Condon about the Kinsey um, mm-hmm. scale, but it didn't get any traction. I think um, Laura Linney was the only nomination from that movie, but. Um, I would Finding Neverland that. just seems like a slam dunk Oscar movie to me, though. I know Especially it does, considered but, uh, that, that it's that it's Miramax for starters right. and just the story, and it's actually it's another film. If you take it out of the context of the fact that it was nominated for Best Picture, it's actually a lovely little film. If you can divorce yourself from the creep factor of depending on how you feel about J.M. Barry, it's it's a it's a lovely little Miramax film. 
It's fine, but I think there were other movies that deserved to be in there, namely Absolutely Eternal agree. Sunshine, for sure. Eternal Sunshine should have been nominated. The this- thing about that is I'd, I never would have predicted that to get in anyway. I, I'm actually stunned and thrilled that Kate Winslet got nominated for it and that it actually won for Best Screenplay. My biggest disappointment about it is that Jim Carrey was overlooked. Yeah. Because I he was, he was, I mean, I'm not sure where I would fit him in. Well, honestly, I would probably kick out Depp or Eastwood happily, even though that wasn't going to happen in either yeah, case. Yeah, exactly. Eastwood, really? Well, he does yeah. cry in it. but He's good in it, but, you know, come on. He's already got one for for. Well, if you had been following along that year, you would have thought it would have had a good chance because it did get a, a Critics' Choice nomination and a Golden Globe nomination for Best Picture, and it, it really did well with the Critics' Awards. Um, it won the Director Award at the Toronto Film Critics. I mean, it, it did seem like it was headed in that direction. So Yeah, and it did well with, with audiences, too. It, it's a, it made $100 million, which for that kind of movie is actually really, really good. Yeah. So it had a chance. It's just it, forget it with Miramax, you know. But bravo to the Academy for for awarding it best screenplay, right? For exactly. Re- and also for, uh, uh, adapted screenplay for Sideways was also a, an excellent award that year. They got both screenplay awards right that year. Yeah, that was a tough. It was a, one of those tough years where there were those really strong movies, so they weren't going to just let sideways walk away after it had won so many mm-hmm. different critics awards and uh heading into the race but it is one of the few times that best picture didn't win best mm-hmm. screenplay you know so and it is an award is, is uh it's alexander payne's is it one of his two oscars or he has his has he won yeah he's yeah. won two he he's won, won for two the descendants for... also yeah right mm-hmm. And I think that uh, aviator ended up winning more oscars than than million dollar baby it won five uh, oh, that's good. I've forgotten about that. That's good to hear. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So just, I would have, uh, I would have, rather than Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind, I would have predicted Vera Drake to get a nomination Vera Drake. because that, yeah, that got at least got a Best Directing nomination. Right. That was probably the biggest surprise of the the announcements that Vera Drake didn't get in. Yeah, everybody thought that was a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. A wonderful film. Can we just have a, a round of applause for Mike Lee? He, mm. I, I kind of gushed over him the last time we talked about him, but it's like I, I tweeted when I was watching Vera Drake again how somehow whenever I'm not watching a Mike Lee movie, I forget about Mike Lee. Or I forget how great he is. But then when I'm watching one of them, I'm just totally knocked out. And, you know, obviously the the subject matter is incredible and the performances are incredible. Um, but he just has this knack for stringing together these tiny little unassuming human moments that and, he, and he's got 10 of them. And in in, when most films don't have any and it's mm. just the, the most the most humane of filmmakers that I can think of. And it just it, it when I see other movies that are, don't even try, it just makes me mad. Then he just the way he so reminds me like naturally. yes absolutely like a modern day Jean Renoir you know because he's so, such a humanist like you said such a humanist point of view and his his ensemble casts are so well integrated and so naturalistic together you know everything meshes together just so because of the way that he rehearses and the way that he writes his scripts is so much is is from input from his actors right right. The way that it, is, that it develops and evolves in the process of making the film, he doesn't have a script that's a solid thing before they get started, but it sort of it creates itself as it goes along. Almost seems right. to be. It's a collaboration mm-hmm. oh, with, yeah. with I would assume a lot of rehearsals. 
Right. You know, oh, yeah. On the surface, if I if you just describe that to me on paper, and it's basically a bunch of dough-faced post-war English people, <laughs> and it just sounds depressing and horrible. But it's just, I mean, and it is sad. Ultimately, it makes you cry in the end. But it's just so, it's so gentle and so moving and and just so amazing. I mean, just little moments like the the Imelda Staunton and her husband giggling in bed over his cold feet, you know, and this is yeah. a couple who've, who've been happily married for 20 or 30 years, and it's just, you know, the, mm. nobody makes movies like he does. No, I love his movies, honestly, and they, the, I don't know why the Academy sort of falls in and in love and out of love with him. I'm, I'm happy to see that the directors acknowledged uh him, I think it's a ten times a better movie than than Finding Neverland, which is fine. It's a fine film. I just don't think it's one of the best pictures of the year. It doesn't deserve no. that that uh, slot. But um, and Imelda Staunton, that would have been your your best to me, your best be, best actress winner. Um, I think that 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 was wasn't this the year that people that being Julia that um, Annette Bening and 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 um, uh, Hilary Swank were were up against the awards again together the way that they had been for Boys Don't Cry yeah, and for Bugsy exactly so people made a big deal about it but really that Amelda Staunton to me was the one who uh, who should have won that year um, but I also have to give a shout out to Catalina Sandina Moreno who was also fantastic. Uh, Maria Full of Grace. Yeah, and she was great in that. And what a surprise. That was one of those movies that that's like a, a, a ballsy, fearless, gritty performance that you don't expect from a beautiful person, but she totally delivers. Really does. She's great in that. Melda Staunton, to me, sort of blew everybody else out of the, the category, though. But she was never going to win because she's not a popular enough star, and she's an old lady, so... Well, and I think that that's the whole attitude that sort of is why Michael Lee can be hit and miss because on paper, it's it's not glamorous, it's not attractive, it's not something you can easily sell somebody on wanting to see. And they're movies that they're hard to describe if you just if you just give the you know the five second plot synopsis. It doesn't necessarily sound like something you'd want to see, but because it's not about really the plot so much as it is about those little human moments that I was talking about. Mm. And also, you know who else is great in it is Eddie Marsan, the the, uh, oh, yeah. the the dude who marries the daughter. That's another beautiful scene where he kind of awkwardly asks asks the daughter, who never imagined in a million years um, that that he wants to marry her. Yeah, it's so just, great. She she doesn't really respond, but she just has a smile on her face. It's like half disbelief and half complete joy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I. I don't know why we get caught up in this drama of Hillary Swank versus Annette Benning. I don't think that um, that's fair to either of them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, being Julia was a lot more complicated than Hillary Swank and Mil- Million Dollar Baby, where it's just, you know, you love her, you want to save her. There's nothing complicated about your feelings um, other than the whole assisted suicide thing, which was a controversy, but it wasn't it wasn't so much that it would have taken away from their love of her and you can tell when people love a movie when they give hillary swank her second lead actress and then that movie best picture that that shows you that they fucking loved million dollar baby no matter what it wasn't driven by uh publicity or anything else they just loved the movie it was almost anti-publicity in a way because we talked about this before we wondered where where it was that uh, uh for instance the million dollar baby first premiere and it was a director's guild really really an 
and, and almost like a clubbish kind of thing, really clickish that only only really Academy members got to see Million Dollar Baby yeah. for weeks and months, you know. And it did. And when it finally did premiere in, in uh, mid December, it was only in eight or nine theaters, and it was in eight or nine theaters for the next four or five weeks, and it didn't expand into a hundred theaters until the end of January. So it was, they just kept it like out of view and it became like the thing that that only academy members could see and word got around it was a sort of a similar situation to the way that they handled their release and the publicity for um the deer hunter remember when we talked about the deer hunter several many many weeks ago they did the same thing with that it became like a special event movie that was reserved for only only industry people mm. but long before the long before the rest of america or the rest of the world got to see those movies Right, um, right, exactly, and and that that that's sort of the old model. That's why mm-hmm. the Oscar race was designed around um, the end of the year. Everybody always said, "Well, why are all the movies crammed in around December?" Well, this is why, because right. in the old model of Oscar, you you waited till the last minute and you brought your movie out and it won. Now you can't do that anymore. The Million Dollar Baby was was the last movie that that, that did that. Every other movie that's won now has come out earlier. Either uh, right around the time of Telluride in Toronto, you know, or shortly thereafter. Like October, I think was was for The Departed, but um, but 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 most of these movies they come out much much earlier because there just isn't time to settle for consensus mm-hmm. to build. There's too many things that can go wrong, you know. Can and we, I wonder uh, too if Million Dollar Baby had uh, had had more exposure earlier on, if 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 uh, people would have had a chance to sort of get over it. You know, it does have a lot of impact when you first leave the theater after seeing that movie, or in the middle of it. There's no way that you can't let it just grab your heart or grab you by the throat because it is that kind of movie that is so emotional. But for me, the emotional part of it I, after I after I had time to think about it, days and weeks later. I started to feel uh, kind of manipulated because that's what Paul Haggis, Haggis does with his screenplays. I think he's really he he creates these traps mm. where he he sees where he's going with the movie and then he makes everything lead up to that point and then you realize at the last minute that he he's backed you into a corner. Yeah, that's the way I feel at least with his screenplays. And I think that, that if you, people had a little bit more time to think about Million, Million Dollar Baby, that maybe the that emotional would have worn off a little bit. Before the ballots were time. Uh, well, I would agree with that if there was another movie that could take its place, but there really wasn't. I mean, that was the, like the only movie that um, that was going to hit like a consensus. You know? Well, and yeah. I think in the case of um, Million Dollar Baby, the script was only one aspect of it. And you're right, Haggis is probably the weak link in that chain, but that denies the performances that were very appealing to people. And I think that a good actor can take a bad script and drive it home. And a good director, and Eastwood is, can mm-hmm. when he when he's got the right kind of material, can can make it work. And and you sort of forgive a film its flaws if it if it if it makes you feel sometimes. Yeah, and there wasn't time for it. See, the thing about the old way as opposed to the new way was the old way was you saw all these movies and you go, okay, it's sort of like OK Cupid. You get okay. Here's my ten choices for guys, right? And then the last guy that you see is the one that you go with because you like him the best, right? Or, or you like this movie the best, and, and you're, you're not going to go back to the other ones, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the last one you saw is the one you vote for. But now it doesn't work that way anymore. They don't go for the last movie that they saw for some strange reason. They always go back to the movie that they feel more confident with, the one that they saw a while ago that they know is a keeper. You know, So the trick for publicists is to get movies 
that are like Million Dollar Baby or Argo or whatever out early, you know, um, so that people can get them settled in their minds. Because the movies don't really change. The kind of movies that they pick don't really change that much. They still like general audience crowd pleasers about sympathetic characters, uh, heroic, good people doing good things for the most part, you know. Mm-hmm. The movies don't change, um, but the timing is important. If you if you try to release a movie like that toward the end of the year, people aren't going to get comfortable enough with it now because there isn't enough time, and so they're going to second-guess themselves, and they're going to pick something they feel more certain about. I think that's the way it works. But uh... Can we go back to uh, Annette Bening for a second? Yeah. Before we get too far afield. Um, first of all, it sucks that she's been nominated four times and doesn't have a single win because she's one of the greatest actresses that we have. But being and she's and she's actually really great in being Julia. But I think it's it's not that great of a movie. It's a good movie, not a great one. But she's spectacular in it. But it, the third film in a row that she was nominated for, where going back to what you were saying before, she's not really that likable. She she is. She's actually fairly sympathetic at first. Um, if you've not seen it, the story is that she's she's an older actress, falls in love with a younger man. He throws her over for a, another younger actress who is also having an affair with her husband. And um, she kind of plots her revenge against all of them. Um, but it kind of leaves a bitter taste in your mouth because the, the, the biggest target of her venom is the young actress. And it should have been the young man and her husband, but right. it, it wasn't. So it kind of makes her, it, at least it left me not loving her character totally when it was all over. I still liked the movie, loved her performance, but I think that might be another case where she lost points with voters because they couldn't embrace her. Absolutely. I'm sorry to have to say it, but that's really what it's about, especially with women, but with men too. It really is about how much you like the character. Yeah. And, and that probably heard another movie that I'm really, really fond of that I think is one of the most undervalued movies of 2004 is Collateral, Michael Mann's Collateral. For one thing, it's a genre film. It's kind of a, it's a thriller. But it also has uh, even uh, it, the, the central character. You're made to believe that the central character is Tom Cruise because he's the, he's the big name. He's the, he's, uh, his name is above the title. But really, it's Jamie Foxx's movie. And he's really a sympathetic character, but at the same time, um, it's a it's a really dark movie, right? And um, I just think I think that the Baptists did a much better job in 2004 of of giving uh, Collateral the the credit that was due to it. I think it it won best uh, best cinematography, and Jamie Foxx won best supporting actor, and it won another BAFTA award too. And so I was really surprised that the that the Oscars overlooked it so ba- so badly that year. That's the weird thing, though. Somebody mentioned this on Twitter. That's uh, Jamie Foxx did get a supporting nomination for Collateral, but how how anybody could consider him a supporting actor in that film is crazy to me. Exactly right. Yeah. But at least he got nominated, and he did win for Ray. Right. Right. Can we talk about Ray a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about Ray. Um. I'd avoided it for years and years and years, as I do with movies sometimes, because I, I, I hate biographies for the most part because they always follow the same template and they're always usually pretty boring. This one wasn't; it didn't it didn't break break out of any molds, but the performances by Jamie Foxx and Kerry Washington were so great. And you know, Kerry Washington's another one who who doesn't have a single Oscar nomination to her name. I don't know how you would fit her in this year, but she was deserving as um, Ray's wife. She was fantastic in it. But anyway, the movie itself is pretty standard by the numbers biography, but 
I think it, it tells a story that I didn't actually really know. I didn't really know Ray's background that much. I've always loved his music, and but I never really knew his story, and it was nice to see it. And I think anything that calls attention to this man who was so... It's easy to forget how important he was to music over the years and during the decades that he was huge and the way he crossed over from soul all the way to country music, which is almost polar opposite in terms of of music. And he was massively successful in both of them. is is incredible. Mm. Right. Yeah. I agree. And it's one of those performances like Capote that is so uncanny, the voice and the mannerisms and the body language and the gestures, everything about that, that it was just, he just became, he really just became Ray Charles. Uh, come on, Keith, it's not that complicated. Now, let's just play it again. As a B-flat, C7, scan it up and triple it off the back end. Yeah, that's it. Ray! What did I tell you about cooking in the dark? Are you trying to burn the house down? The thing about it, Marlene, what do I need to light for? Well, you don't need to be cooking anyway. We brought you takeout from Oscars. Well, get your money back. I got a ticket right here. Come on, 7 0 Trace. Yeah, about time. Mm. Yeah, that's home cooked right there. Mm. No, thank you. For most of the time, just need a little hot sauce. Perfect. Yeah. So, what Jack Lauderdale have to say? Oh, I clocked him coming out the gate. The man was a two bit hustler. Oh, I see. Yeah, it turns out that the only hit that Swing Time ever had was Open the Door Richard, which was a joke record. What about him recording me? Oh, he'll record you if we pay the freight. Scratch a life, find a thief. (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? This. You see, I saw Jack Lauderdale tonight, and he gave me $500 advance on my record. He also said he'd put me on the road with Low Folsom and pay me three times as much as you've been paid. No, that's a lie. Ain't no way he gonna put some blind man on the road. Think about it. I mean, you you need watching out for, and he ain't got the time to look after you the way I've been looking. Is that after what you've been doing? Is he watching out for me? Is that why you get paid double what I do? Who told you that? Well, it's true, ain't it? You and Marlene have been gaming me since I got here. Ray, baby, listen. I've got to listen to you. Look, Ray, I, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Then why'd you talk? Um, look, Ray, Ray, let's not do nothing stupid. I might be blind, but I ain't stupid. Q, get my back from upstairs. What? Get it. R- right now? Now, Ray, man, we done been through a whole lot. Ray, Ray now, wait a minute. I can explain everything. Now, look, Ray, wait, think about what you're Ray, doing. Ray, wait, now, you make it a big mistake. That clown has gotten promised that he can't keep your big old fool to follow him. Hey, look, Ray, Ray, we'll make a new deal. Whatever make you act, deal is, you can lay the pipe now. You trying to break your neck going down these stairs by yourself? Hang on. Oh, man. Ray, I ain't never seen you do nothing like that, man. That ain't nothing, seven hours. Right, and, and you know, sometimes playing a, a famous person, it can be a crutch, and they're just they're just mimicking the person, and they're, mm-hmm. they're just a, a, a collection of you know ticks and mannerisms mm-hmm. that are familiar as that person. But as 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 Philip Seymour Hoffman did with Capote, he he makes Jamie Fox makes Ray a human being, and mm-hmm. you forget that you're watching Jamie Fox. It's mm-hmm. a it's a difficult job, but he. He really nailed it. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I don't, I don't remember. I just remember that being that year being very um, one of those, you know, unequivocal years where you just a, a contender sort of mows down the competition. There's no question about about it that he's going to win. Um, we didn't have a lot of 
you know, people saying that it was a white director directing a black man, like none of that was coming out at that time. But it was a pretty big deal that, that Jamie Foxx was, was nominated the same year as Don Cheadle. I mean, I think at that we were still, to, we, were, we were already starting to talk about the uh, disparity between white nominees and, and black nominees. And Jamie Foxx was such a charmer. He was like Kevin Spacey. You know, he was just, everywhere he went, he made a show of it. And he was so funny and attractive and, and crazy. And no one had, had really seen him before. He'd been in a few movies, but it was such small supporting roles that he 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 was, rel- he was re- re- relatively unknown, right? He came out he of was, nowhere. He was, he was well known for on TV for In Living Color. But he oh, wasn't, I yeah. I, he wasn't I, I can't think of anything huge that he'd done movie-wise before then. And I forgot he was out of the box with Ray and Collateral in the same year. Yeah. But even even though he was relatively big on In Living Color, you would never see that and think, oh, well, he's going to go on and do great things in movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. And that, that that was the other thing that was sort of surprising about that year. So strangely, Jamie Foxx hasn't really come out and done much after that. Like that was one of those kiss of deaths of Oscar winners. It, t- it tends to hit women uh, and minorities harder, I think, than, than white actors. I think because they just don't, they are not offered the screenplays. It's not that they make bad choices. It's just that their their choice, they don't have the choices that, to begin with. There just aren't a lot of choices to choose from, right? There just aren't a lot of roles offered to them right. after their Oscar wins. Maybe Same like thing. Cuba Gooding Jr. or Holly Berry or Jamie Foxx. You know, they kind mm-hmm. of, they win. And then well, and, and after, we'll get to this next week, but after after 2006, the 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 I hate to say it, but the black flavor of the moment was for for a couple of years after that was um, was um, oh shit uh, Terrence Howard mm-hmm. right. after after Crash and he mm-hmm. actually had a small part in Ray but so it's kind of like there's more actors than there are parts for them and yeah. every couple of years there's a new flavor of the moment and it's hard for for them to get back on that carousel. Right, coming down the pike, yeah. I'm glad you brought up collateral. Yeah, I bungled it because I, 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 I sounded like I was arguing against myself. I started out saying, because I was trying to make a segue, but I made a, a, a <laughs> really shit, shitty job of it because you guys were talking about how dark characters or, or unsympathetic characters yeah. don't are not Oscar material. But on the other hand, Jamie Foxx is a really sympathetic character in that movie. He is he absolutely fulfills the qualification of being a sympathetic character, somebody that you root for. He's right. the hero of that movie. And so I was like, what a stupid point I was making there. I don't know. I just I realized you were what thinking I was that the them. movie is so dark and Tom yeah, Cruise's character and I was, is so dark. Yeah, exactly. But and so I tried to like wiggle around and try to make it fit, but I did a really bad job of it. I think but I love that right. movie. I love that. I realized what I was doing once I got into the middle of that sentence but i it was too late i was already in the middle of it. <laughs> you'd already invaded poland there's no turning around that's right but i do really like that movie a lot and that cinematography blew me away because i'd never seen anything like that before it was a it was one of the first movies that used digital f- cinematography and that captured nighttime yeah it was just you could see forever you could see way way in the distance and there's such detail and uh who was that? Dion Beebe, I think. That was a cinematographer. Uh, and, yeah. Um, yeah, I think he also shot um, 
Memories of a Geisha, Memoirs of a Geisha. Oh, wow. Anyway, and I think he won for that. But anyway, he's fantastic. And um, so I'm really glad that at least the, the Baptist recognized his achievement in that movie. Yeah, wow. but I love that movie. Collateral is one of my favorite movies of, of the year and one of my favorite movies of the decade. I could yeah. watch it again. One of my favorite L.A. Again. movies. It captures a certain L.A. Yeah. mood that you never see in movies. Because yeah. yeah. L.A. is always about the daytime and the brightness, the bright sun and the palm trees. And this is sort of like the gritty back alley nighttime la right right which i love yeah kind of feel bad that jim carrey didn't get in for uh eternal sunshine he he seemed like he was yeah know? even more so than man on the moon which he was nominated for i think this is a much it was a less showy performance but that's what made it so remarkable yeah and i think it really kind of kicked his ass that nothing he did he could get recognized for with the academy they're just never going to take him seriously you know I'm looking now. Sorry to go back to Collateral, but the Baptist really did love Collateral. They nominated Michael Mann for Best Director. It won Best Screenplay that year. Uh, it also won the National Board of Review. Um, let's see. Let me check down here to make sure that I'm not misspeaking. National Society of Film Critics uh, awarded um, Jamie Foxx for Best Supporting Actor. And uh, let's see. National Board of Review gave Michael Mann Best Director. Yeah, it was headed for the Oscar race. It was one of those yeah. that were definitely headed for the for the race early. Because Michael Mann commands respect, deservedly so, because he he's another one of those directors that that really never makes a bad movie. Well, especially back then, you know, he hadn't yeah, quite yeah. taken a fall. He was still sort of living off the um, the memory of uh, of the Insider, you know, and mm-hmm. not quite. Right. He hadn't quite gotten to the point where people just sort of gave up on him, which it seems like he's at now. But. Yeah, that's really too bad. What has he done lately, and what's he what's he had have in store for him? Let me look real quick. But um, yeah, it, it, it's so weird to go to this year because it really was kind of a craptacular year. <laughs> I don't know why. For me, it's like last year was all about Lost in Translation. For me, it's all about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind this year. Did we did we talk about that? Directly, or did we just kind of talk around it? No, let's talk we about talk it. around it. Uh, but okay. you know, it's, it's always it's really gratifying whenever people talk about their favorite movies of the past decade. Uh, how how often Eternal Sunshine is not only on the list, but it's near the top of the list for so many people. It yeah. surprises me every time I watch it how good it is. That's how good it mm-hmm. is. You know, a lot of times you fall in love with a movie and you sort of take it for granted. But this is like every time I watch it, it's like, wow, I've forgotten actually how good this was. I mean, it's a movie that that uh, compare it to a crappy romance like Garden State. That Zach or that. Uh, yeah, was it Zach Braff? The kid yeah. from Scrubs. Mm-hmm. Terrible. I hated that movie. It's just noxious, <laughs> phony romance that, you know, this this emo twaddle that just makes you want to punch kittens in the face. This is a movie that m- that makes you want to fall in love even while it shows you yeah. how absolutely shitty and horrible love is. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't skate around the fact that love is a giant pain in the ass, but despite everything that they go through through that film, at the end, you're you're overjoyed that they want to try and do it again. So go. I did. I thought maybe you were a nut, but you were excited. I wish you'd stayed. I wish I'd stayed too. Now I wish I'd stayed. I wish I'd done a lot of things. I wish I had. I'd stay. I do. 
Well, I came back downstairs and you were gone. I walked out. I walked out the door. Why? I don't know. I felt like a scared little kid. I was like, it was above my head. I don't know. You were scared? Yeah. I thought you knew that about me. I ran back to the bonfire trying to outrun my humiliation, I think. Was it something I said? Yeah. You said so go. With such disdain, you know? Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Jolie? What if you stayed this time? I walked out the door. There's no memory left. Come back and make up a goodbye at least. Let's pretend we had one. Together, to knowing how that may turn out, they don't care. They want to. They want to take that chance again, and it's the kind of movie that it, that it inspires you. It's like I'm a, you know, it, it makes you want to get out there and, and and knock it around and try it, you know, and oh, yeah. and take your lumps. It's 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 a beautiful film about love. It might be the epitome uh, love story that that's ever been made. And the thing about I'm really happy to have lived through the Charlie Kaufman era because I don't think that screenwriting ever saw anything like him before, and hasn't seen anything like him since. He took the genre, he took the craft of filmmaking to such a totally different level. It wasn't he didn't write films to serve as a director or to serve as an audience. He he wrote wildly original screenplays that that were on their own brilliant like they didn't come from a novel you know they Mm -hmm. they just and he just played with the form he didn't follow any rules and he just went you know he he let his imagination go and he was lucky that he had directors who would would indulge him and, and studios that would would allow those films to be made and let that beautiful you know electric uh narrative come to life I just think he's, uh, I saw him one time ice skating in the valley with his daughter. And he's, That's a weird thing. I know. <laughs> I was like, wow, there's Charlie Kaufman ice skating. What's the status of Anomalisa or whatever his new movie is going to be? What is that on or off? It's got like four question marks after it on IMDb. I was just looking at it just now because I was curious about the same thing. They have you know the casting Jennifer Jason Lee and David Thewlis and uh, Tom Noonan, but uh, it's like it like seems suspended. It's in limbo or something well, right what's now. What's it supposed to be? It's supposed. To, it's not the blogger one, right? I have no idea. No, the uh, funny blogger that. one. This is a, I can't even find a synopsis of it. Do you know what this what it's about in general, Craig? No, he's one of those guys where I try to know yeah, nothing right. before it comes yeah, out. Yeah. I just he has written um, a lot of uh, uh, that really funny screenplay about blogging, and I, I don't know if it'll ever get made, but it would be really funny if he did about film bloggers. Mm-hmm. He's written. Uh, he obviously wrote Being John Malkovich, which is genius. 
Human Nature, which was another Michel Gondry film, which was like, eh, I don't know whose fault that was, but it wasn't the best of, of anybody involved. Adaptation, which is genius. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is genius. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is genius. And Synecdoche, New York, which he also directed, which is genius. Yeah, he's quite something. And, you know, Eternal Sunshine was not doing too badly that year in the Oscar race. It's just that the Academy members couldn't quite get their minds around it. But it did win some significant film awards, uh, like the Washington D.C. And, you know, um, maybe that's not too significant, but it it didn't it wasn't nothing. You know, it did. It it absolutely had its uh, its hype and momentum leading into the race. It just it just wasn't going to be a general consensus movie. and, And it's all the better for it. It was just a little too out there. Yeah, and brilliant, and bravo to him for being a little too out there. You know, I wish ordinarily had... when a when a screenwriter does something that's like that like breaks all the rules, it's like a one off thing. They can do it once, but they can never replicate it. But he he did it three or four different times and did variations on it, so that none of those movies are anything alike. But they're all they're they're also not not like anything else that's ever been made before. Right. So it's, it's not like there was a Charlie Kaufman formula where he was like cranking out like a gimmick that he'd come up with. They were all totally different, but all exactly. to- uniquely Charlie Kaufman. He is and, doing and a series for the FX channel right now that is going to be starring Catherine Keener and Michael Cera and Sally Hawkins. Great cast, John Hawkes. And it's uh, it's about a, uh, looks like a guy who's like a TV producer or something who finds a portal to the supernatural world. And it's going to be in a shooting this spring. It starts shooting this month, it looks like. So that's mm. going to be interesting. Yeah, that does sound interesting. I'm glad to see he's still working. And I, and I can only imagine how many screenwriters over the years have been trying to, like, do the Charlie Kaufman thing, you know, trying to copy his kind of crazy style, you know. But mm-hmm. really, he's the only one that can do it, I think. Um, imagine if he uh, – from what I can tell from this, it's, it's going to be uh, – it's uh, it's 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 listed as a TV movie. I wonder if it's a pilot or if it's going to be a series or what. It does look like just the pilot is all that they say that they're okay. going to be shooting. So I guess they're going to have to wait to see if the pilot. Um, so maybe it's not. A, I thought it, I got the impression it was going to be a limited series, like a mini series or something. But it might be something that it's going to be, if it if it uh, catches on, it might be a, you know, extended series, season after season. I hope that it does, because imagine what a guy like with his imagination could do with the long-form format. I mean, right. it seems like two hours is barely enough to contain the chaos in his head as it is. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. Imagine if he were if he were unleashed with the, the current freedom on TV. Absolutely. Would... I suspect that, yeah, you're so right. He would really thrive if someone would just give him the chance on television. Yeah. And he would take advantage of the format. You know, he would he would milk it for all it's worth. Can I read something? And this this might amuse you. Yeah. Maybe you'll end up cutting it out. But actually, somebody on on Twitter, uh, Clarence on Twitter, reminded me of this. Mm. I'm going to start reading it, and I'll see how quickly you realize who I'm reading. Um, you ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was written um, on November 11th, 2004, which was about four months before the actual Oscars. It's very scary to go out on a type on the tightrope alone, and I don't really like to make decisive statements in the heat of a still developing Oscar season. But here I go: the only movie that can keep the Phantom of the Opera from winning Best Picture <laughs> is the <A-game. laughs> Tom O'Neill. No, it's no, David Poland. David Poland. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Let, let me continue. It gets better. 
Let me say it again. This is not about locking in a nomination. This is not a guess because the film is one of my favorites, so it's got to happen. This is a film whose buzz has come so far 100% from a handful of people who saw it in long lead screenings and have been pissing on it ever since, but they are wrong. The Aviator is the only movie still little seen that has the size and the potential weight to kick Phantom out of a Best Picture win. It could do it it two ways. It could beat Phantom outright, or it could create a split in the voting for the two big old Hollywood pictures and allow a smaller film to sneak in through the back door. So it's not 100%, but anyone who thinks the Phantom of the Opera isn't being nominated is, well, to be kind, just wrong. Oh, God! Oh, poor guy! That's like the worst! I would delete that. You know that great David scene? Poland, ladies and gentlemen. No, that great scene in Nixon where Joan Allen comes in drunk. You should burn them. <laughs> Talk about the tapes. You should burn them. He should burn that article. He should, he should Nixon tape it. <laughs> he should burn it. I would never thing want is, that. Is he, that's the thing. Is that This is a cautionary tale because he wrote this. 16 weeks before the Oscars. And so remember this, the next next November when people are spouting off about what's going to win the Oscar, that they're completely full of shit. And if you go, and I, I kind of scanned each of his columns week by week, and once Million Dollar Baby came out and he saw it with a, with a hugely enthusiastic audience and he realized that that was actually probably the one to beat, he kind of stopped talking about Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I think he, oh yeah, wow. he's, he's remembered as being this huge proponent of it, but he pretty quickly dropped it. And when things got down closer to the wire, he wasn't talking about it at all. He no, didn't even mention it. Because it hits such a thud. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. I was, I'm always trying to tell people, even including Kyle Buchanan this last year when he was coming out proclaiming 12 Years a Slave to Win, um, uh, it, it, you, know, you, you, you always learn your lesson. When did you say he wrote that, Craig? Was it in November? What November eleventh. Well, that's like that's 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 pretty late. That's forty days before Phantom of the Opera even opened. Well, that was his problem. He'd seen it it, though, and so he he loved it. That's Mm. why you always have to wait. Like my friend and I saw um, uh, Saving Mr. Banks together, and he said, "Oh, that's going to do so well. That's going to be a major Oscar player, and it's going to get nominated." And I thought, you know what? You can't say that because you have to wait until a movie is, you know, the way people react to a screening. It doesn't really matter what your opinion of the movie is. It it almost always matters what other people think. And in the case of Phantom of the Opera, that was David Poland's big mistake. And I don't think he's ever made that mistake again, is that you think that when you see a movie... My mistake on that was The Kite Runner. I saw the kite runner. I remember runner, the kite runner, yeah. And I loved right. it so much. And I saw, and the butler this last year was also like that for me. Mm-hmm. Is that I really thought that my own reaction meant that that meant that the movie was going to do really well. But there are so many other factors that you have to take into consideration. Reviews. And that's the way people felt about Les Miserables, too. The people who went to see Les Mis on its first opening weekend are the people who are going to be like the absolute number one fanatics for that movie, right? That's why they show up on the on the opening day to see it, and they want to be sure to see it on the on the special VIP premieres and everything. So those people are already on board with it. They're already in the tank for that movie before they even see it. I still can't believe it won more Oscars than Life of Pi. No, I can't or either. Lincoln. I don't even think about that. But another movie that we forgot to talk about, another movie that got extraordinary reaction on its opening weekend because for the same reason, the people who were already members of the choir turned out to see it was Fahrenheit 9-11. Right, right. The right. people who turned out to see that movie in the theaters on in the first week were the hardcore Democrats 
and the, the absolute Bush haters, right? Well, the people who yeah. are already on on Team Michael Moore and on Team right. Al Gore. Someone wanted us to talk about that, I think, in the comment section. About mm-hmm. Yeah, that. I'm. I'm so I'm glad but we kind of. The thing about it is that the the one thing that happened that year was that uh, he took it out of Oscar um, eligibility because he showed it. I can't remember exactly what he did, but he either showed it on TV or he somehow released it in such a way that it became ineligible to win mm-hmm. the Oscar. But he could, because he really wanted people to see the movie, you know, that's how much mm-hmm. he wanted people to see. Because it. he wanted them to see it before the election, probably, right? right? Exactly. He didn't yeah. care so much about mm-hmm. the the, uh, the the Oscar. He already mm-hmm. won for Bowling for Columbine. But uh, Fahrenheit yeah. 911 is um, is a wonderful, I think, great film about. Uh, the war, the war in Iraq, and and he's one of the few that that actually confronted that early on, and now everybody kind of understands that that's how it went down. Although some people still disagree with that, but he did. It does. The most memorable part of that is this: the the, the when he sees when he shows um, George Bush hearing about the the bombings, and he's reading My Pet Goat. That's probably the big takeaway from that movie. As the attack took place, Mr. Bush was on his way to an elementary school in Florida. When informed of the first plane hitting the World Trade Center, where terrorists had struck just eight years prior, Mr. Bush decided to go ahead with his photo opportunity. When the second plane hit the tower, his chief of staff entered the classroom and told Mr. Bush, the nation is under attack. Not knowing what to do, with no one telling him what to do, and no secret service rushing in to take him to safety, Mr. Bush just sat there and continued to read My Pet Goat with the children. seven minutes passed with nobody doing anything. As Bush sat in that Florida classroom, was he wondering if maybe he should have shown up to work more often? Should he have held at least one meeting since taking office to discuss the threat of terrorism with his head of counterterrorism? Or maybe Mr. Bush was wondering why he had cut terrorism funding from the FBI. Or perhaps he just should have read the security briefing that was given to him on August 6, 2001, which said that Osama bin Laden was planning to attack America by hijacking airplanes. But maybe he wasn't worried about the terrorist threat because the title of the report was too vague. I believe the title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. A report like that might make some men jump. But as in days past, George W. just went fishing. As the minutes went by, George Bush continued to sit in the classroom. Was he thinking, I've been hanging out with the wrong crowd? Which one of them screwed me? Was it the guy my daddy's friends delivered a lot of weapons to? 
Was it that group of religious fundamentalists who visited my state when I was governor? Or was it the Saudis? Damn, it was them. I think I better blame it on this guy. It's disappointing that it wasn't, it didn't qualify because I think it's actually a much better movie than Bowling for Columbine is, which did get nominated and won. But as you mentioned last week, uh, or was it last week or the week before, that his controversial speech when he accepted the award for Bowling for Columbine may well have kept him from getting a nomination anyway. Mm, yeah. Also, the fact that probably the Fahrenheit 9 11 had a definite agenda, and when that agenda failed to succeed, then it made the movie in retrospect look like that it hadn't accomplished its goal, right? When Bush was reelected, then, well, Fahrenheit 9 11 didn't do what it set out to do. It didn't, it didn't change America's mind after all, right. whereas it really should have if enough people had seen it. But the people whose, whose minds could have been change didn't go see it and then there were people whose minds could never be changed who would never have seen it in the first place oh my god but i mean there's the, the questions that he brought up and he asked in that movie are still being asked today in mm-hmm. fact rachel maddow was doing it and with her um series on msnbc the why we did it series the two-part thing that she's done on msnbc that they re-aired this past week where she covers all the same territory only now instead of speculation she has the actual facts and the documentation behind it right. and the interviews with the people mm. thing is is it won the palm door and i'd rather have a palm door than an oscar any day i would too. there you go especially when you've already got an oscar like you said yeah. you know you have the collection of all the different kinds of awards the I Palm th- Door and the People's Choice Award. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, the the Oscar is so like this is this is this particular group of people's taste. The mm-hmm. Palm Door tends to be a little bit different. About I mean, yes, it's a smaller jury, and but but they do they really are looking just at quality of film rather than quality general. of film. But you have to admit that the French love seeing America get stuck in the eye too. They do, mm-hmm. but I mean, I don't know what the the, the uh, makeup was of the, the jury if they were all French. That's or, true. You know, there, there's always a mix of them. But yes, indeed, and Europe was way ahead of the curve on the Iraq War, and it took America a long time to catch up and to, to turn against. I can't believe George Bush won a second um, term, because mm-hmm. I remember that was orange alerts and security. This and Michael Moore was really the first person, and and I have to say that I love living in a country. I love America because I love that that you can be Michael Moore and you can make a movie like that and no one can tell you you can't. Here's the jury at Cannes that year. Quentin Tarantino president, Emmanuel Barrett, Edwidge Danticant, who I don't know who that is, Tilda Swinton, Kathleen Turner, Benoit Polvoord, I don't know who that is, Jerry Schatzberg, don't know who that is, Sui Hark, the director, I probably mispronounced his name, and Peter von Bach, I don't know who that is either. Mm. But, um, yeah, several Americans, three Americans, well, two Americans and a, and a, what is Tilda Swinton? Is she Irish or is she English? Uh, Scottish, I think. Scottish. I think. Well, we have to talk about Sideways because it's my favorite movie of the year, and I don't think we've Please do. I've been waiting for you to bring it up. I know it's the end of the podcast, and most people have tuned out by now, but um, I just want to say how much I love this movie and how I feel like I am... All four of those main characters live inside of me at varying times in my life. Like, I feel like I have Miles as a very strong thrust. Um, The Thomas Hayden Church, um, Virginia Madsen, and uh, Sandra... uh, No, it's not Sandra Singlow. Sandra uh, O. Sandra O. 
you know, various times, I feel like all of them, and I love all four of them. I think they're just so uh, beautifully delineated. Um, it's such a sad movie because Miles is, it's so obvious when you watch it now, as opposed to then, because I think <clears throat> when it first came out, people were kind of romanticized, romanticizing this idea of, of wide tastings and driving up to wine country. And But I think when you watch it now, it's really clear what's going on, which is, you know, poor Miles, he's just, he's an alcoholic and he's hiding it behind this this veil of I'm a wine snob, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 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 they go and they have these wine tastings and you know, it's it's this beautiful idea of he thinks he's a better person than his friend. And um, you know, his friend is is just his friend is a sex addict and he has to have sex with any woman that he can anytime he can, you know, have it. And it's he's like you don't understand my plight. That's his plight. <laughs> he has to have sex with a lot of women. And um Miles eventually finds love again. He opens his heart again. Uh, he's, you know, he's this failed writer. He's like, I'm not even significant enough to kill myself. So you'll write another one. You've got lots of ideas, no, right? No, I'm finished. I'm not a writer. I'm a middle school English teacher. Eh, the world doesn't give a shit what I have to say. I'm unnecessary. <laughs> I'm so insignificant, I can't even kill myself. Miles, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Come on, man, you know, Hemingway, Sexton, Plath, Wolf. You can't kill yourself before you've even been published. What about the guy that wrote Confederacy of Dunces? He committed suicide before he was published. Look how famous he is. Thanks. Just don't give up, right? You're gonna make it. Half my life is over, and I have nothing to show for it. Nothing. I'm a thumbprint on the window of a skyscraper. I'm a smudge of excrement on a tissue, surging out to sea with a million tons of raw sewage. See? Right there. Just what you just said, that is beautiful. A smudge of excrement surging out to sea. Yeah. I could never write that. Neither could I, actually. I think it's Bukowski. Hey, baby. what I got for our favorite girl. Motherfucker! Oh, Jesus Christ! Oh, you Stephanie, stop! You're getting married on Saturday! What was all that oh, shit you said to me? Stephanie, stop! I can explain! You said you love me! I do! Oh, I hope you die! Stop it! Stephanie! Go! <laughs> Fuck face! You two! Hey! <laughs> he has such low self-esteem, but um, but I love watching him kind of bumble through this movie and try to sort of make sense of the life right in front of him. And to me, it's like, uh, you know, one of Alexander Payne's wonderful road movies, you know, where it's this is kind of a coming-of-age, even though he's older. He's not coming-of-age, he's not a teenager, but... 
he's kind of growing into a man, um, driving across country with his friend. And they it's were, more of a, it's a self-realization more than coming of age. It's a self-realization yeah. movie, right? Right, right. And they're they're kind of driving, driving, uh, you know, having his like bachelor party, and all that one guy wants to do is get laid, and all Paul Giamatti seems to want to do is taste wine and drink, and um, they're just they're both like kind of paralyzed by delusion and illusion of who they are and who they want to be and it's just so brilliantly written and wonderfully filmed uh and and alexander payne has such a free a free sense of things with his camera he kind of just lets it go all over the place and and it really captures a sense of time and place there with that film up up in los olivos the thing about those two characters though is even though they're both damaged in their own ways Thomas Hayden Church just has is completely comfortable and cool with who he is. And so he just rolls with it, and things turn out really well for him for the most part. Mm-hmm. He has his ups and downs, but everything kind of kind of works out for him in the end and it's because he doesn't he doesn't fight it you know he knows what he wants he knows how to get it he knows how to get it and he goes for it whereas miles is just so incredibly uptight and inside of his own head and so desperate to convince people that he's a bigger man than he really is and just such a total misfit mess that (laughs) it takes him much longer to 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 get to the to the point that that thomas hayden church pretty much is in the whole movie i think yeah I don't think so. I mean, he's he's. Uh, you can sort of see the end of poor T- Thomas Hayden Church's marriage before it ever even starts. Like he has all these intentions of getting married, but in the end, he's there's no way he's going to end up. Probably, but he'll roll with it and he'll move on to the next one. Right, right. It's one of the last years where the critics were like really. The critics really understood what was going on with that movie more than the Oscars did. It swept the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, won Best Film, Best Actor, Best yeah. Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. And also the L.A. Film Critics had also swept yeah. with uh, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It was beloved. And so, you know, yeah. for they, it was one of the last times that the New York and L.A. had been in accord with each other in agreement, and then the Oscars just totally shunned it. Yep. Or it got, it got the one Oscar for Best Screenplay. Yeah, they didn't shun it. They just, in the end, yeah. they didn't, like right. I say, it was... got a Best Picture nomination, yeah. so didn't yeah, get that, that yeah. well. Right. There's mm-hmm. nobody in Sideways you can root for. Um, mm-hmm. what, do you root, what are you rooting for? Like, there's no... It's such a kind of a, a subtle film, and I just that's not the kind of thing that, that, that a large consensus can get behind when they pick their, their winner. Definitely not a consensus, although when I first saw it, the headspace that I was in at the time that I saw it, deep, deeply cynical and and misanthropic and even worse than I am now, I could totally identify with Miles. Oh, God, but me it, too. It's, it's interesting, though, to see, to watch him now, 10 years later, in a much happier headspace and to to find him more repellent than I did then. Well, he's repellent because of the first scene he goes to his mo- mother's. Uh, it's like every scene, it's it's a contradiction of what he says he is. That's what's right. so great about it. Like it's, he's absolutely living this illusion. I love that about him. I, I don't like any movies where the characters aren't this messed up because to me, that's what life is. You know, just struggling with these kind of who you are, who you think you are, who you want to be, who you'd like to be. But when he steals the money from his poor mom, you know, it's like. He goes up there, he takes the money out, and the last line of that scene is her saying to him, do you need some money? And it cuts, you know, and then he wakes up, and he's waking up Thomas Hayden Church, and the mom is passed out on the couch, you know, these drinkers, these alcoholics, and he gets on the, you know, they get in the car, and they start driving, and 
Miles is so clinging to this idea that he's a writer, right? And that he's just a wine taster and he's appreciating of the wine, but all he really wants to do is drink, you know? Drink and show people how smart he is about something. <laughs> that's very important, too. But how great but see, is that? see, that's the funny thing about that scene you're talking about of him robbing his mother and the difference between me then and me now is me then thought that scene was hilarious. The fact that he was robbing his own mother was the saddest yet funniest thing that I'd ever seen. And now it just kind of just, now it just makes me feel sad. The funny part, the funny part is gone because I'm not as cynical as I yeah. was then. It is sad, but and I love the scene with with him and Virginia Madsen where she, they're talking about Pinot Noir and and he he gives his big you know he says this is what she says why Pinot and he tells her why and then she tells him why, and it's like such a seductive incredible you know alluring speech and she puts her hand on him <laughs> he's like he's totally a deer in the headlights like he can't react at all he can't take her up on it he just immediately withdraws you know and he 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 just can't quite quite face. He can't, no matter how much wine he drinks, no matter what he does with himself, he can't quite face what life is, the rawness of it, you know, and especially in that moment of someone making a pass, this beautiful woman making a pass, you know, the rawness of it. And that, that's really what he's grappling with through the whole film is that the rawness of life, how, how things just sometimes don't work out. You know, his novel's probably never going to sell. He'll probably be a teacher for the rest of his life, you know. And it's funny listening to him describing the Pinot Noir grape because he's basically describing himself, this this thin-skinned, sensitive thing, but complex and needs a special a special grower in order to understand it and to bring the best out of it. <laughs> right. And she's talking about all this other, like, really sensual uh, stuff about how, you know, wine is... I always think of her speech when I open a bottle of wine because she's like, a, wine, a bottle of wine is, you know, different every time, you know, depending on the day that you open it. And it's different depending on the day that those grapes were put into the bottle, you know, the, the grapes were... The grape juice was, was made into the wine. Like, she's like, they're alive. It's alive, you know. And that's really her. That describes her in a lot of ways, you know. It's just this alive thing right in front of him that he can't quite... He can't quite find and reach for. And she, and she comes across so much less pretentious than he does whenever she's talking about wine. She just has a natural, genuinely appreciative way. She doesn't seem like she's trying to put one over on somebody or show anybody up. She's just she's just deeply into it. It's a true yeah. passion, which to, to an extent it is for him too, but it also seems like a defense mechanism for him. Yeah, it's both for sure. He's, he's found a way to hide within that. Yeah. But there's still that love of wine. Just like with his writing, there's still the love of, of the actual writing. And it comes through, even though he's he's still caught up in this idea of I want to be a writer. You know, I want to be a famous writer. You know, I want to be significant enough to kill myself. <laughs> but, you know, contrast that with Thomas Hayden Church's seduction of, um, Sa- uh, what's her name again? Um, Sandra O. Oh. Sandra O. Oh. And he really does kind of, not lie to her so much as as sort of see himself in that moment as somebody who could get together with her. Right. Even he lies to himself. He lies to himself. And, and he's not really like, I'm a smoothie and I'm lying to you. He actually lives in the moment of, I could really make this. And you know that because when he has sex with the, the waitress, you know, that his standards are really not all that uh, high. He's kind of <laughs> like, I just, you know, I'll, I can I can roll with it. 
<laughs> whatever it is, I can roll with this is my plight. Well, and he, he gets wrapped up in this whole scenario and he tries to talk Miles into it, that they're going to move north and buy a vineyard and right. hang out with Sandra Oh, and he loves the kid and he's just like, he's totally into it. He's just, he's in the moment. Whatever's in front of him at that moment, that's the thing that he wants. I know. <laughs> I love that. Sandra Oh is married to Alexander Payne, isn't she? Or she was then. She They were married at the time, right? Yeah, and then is there was right? a disgraceful yeah, so. breakup where he had an affair and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's kind of a mess. I hate to hear that. But, I mean, at least he did give her that one great – you know, she's a great actress. It's a great role for her. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of those near-perfect screenplays. And it's nice to see that almost across the board that it won all of the best um, um, adapted screenplay awards that year. Oh, yeah, for sure. From every, every single group except the uh, – Let's see, except the US, USC Scripter Award, which gave it for some reason to Million, do- million Dollar Baby. Oh, bad sign. I know. That's bad. an Argo, Argo moment for you right there. Mm-hmm, really, for sure. But, um, but yeah, that love, I love it. I love how the movie just devolves, to use a Miles word. It devolves to, um, to that scene where he comes back naked and he's like huddled in a blanket and he's like, I got you. <laughs> my wallet back because <laughs> the wallet has the wedding rings in and he's like and she put our names in sanskrit <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like he doesn't even know that he's gonna m- really marry her i mean obviously he can't stay with sandra oh because she's beat him to a pulp and his face is you know his nose is broken and he's gonna be- <laughs> but you know you really know it right then when he's like you know i have to marry christine i don't have anything else i have to marry her and then they have to go and get the- and then they walk into the that house and the husband and the wife, oh, are you a bad girl? Yeah, I'm a bad girl. You fucked him right here. I fucked him right here. You know? And then he's like running. Miles is running out and the naked guy is running after him. Oh, my God. That scene is so great. So he gets the wallet. You know, my, uh, they, they crash the car to make it look like that's how he broke his nose. And all is right with the world. You know, he puts together the story and makes the story work, you know. Probably not going to last their marriage, but... But when the end credits roll, everybody's happy. Everybody's happy because Miles gets the girl, you know. And I've never bought another bottle of Merlot since I saw Me that either. movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ever. Ever. <laughs> I always buy Pinot Noir. It's so sad for poor Merlot. <laughs> I know, really. Nobody's ever going to drink it, though. I mean, you see it in the store and it's like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll drink it. I just won't admit it. <laughs> Uh, the one, the only movie that I can think of that I would like to give a quick shout out to is The Incredibles because it's my, f- it was actually my first Pixar movie. I had I had missed the Pixar boat up until that point, which is sad wow. but mm-hmm. true. But I love The Incredibles. It's a wonderful. It's it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful movie all by itself, not just a, a wonderful cartoon, but it um, got four nominations. It got screenplay, sound mixing, sound editing, and animated feature, and it won for animated feature and sound editing, which was pretty great. Hmm. Interesting. I'm kind of enjoying the outrage this year that people are having about the sequel to The Incredibles. People are just like, it's like making a sequel to... It's like making Godfather 4 or something, or Gone yeah. with the Wind. Yeah, it's like Gone with the Wind 2 or something. People take it so personally because so many people love that movie, and it is such a unique gem in its own that you cannot imagine that they're just going to try to milk another movie out of it. Well, you know, but, they're going to. They did it with Finding Nemo, so the only things left are Ratatouille and Wall-E, you know, and then the, yeah. probably make sequels of those too. Yeah, they did Monsters, Inc. too. They'll never do A Bug's Life because nobody likes Poor Little Bug's Life. 
Even Cars 3 is in development, so you Ugh. know if they're going to remake Cars, it's Cars 8. They're just it's regurgitating this. their own turds at this point. Well, it's, it's this is what I predicted would happen when yeah, Disney exactly. bought Pixar. Exactly right, yeah. Here's the top of the box office. Shrek 2. Woohoo! Mm. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Spider-Man 2. The Incredibles. The Passion of the Christ. The Day After Tomorrow. Meet the Fockers. Speaking of which... Troy, Shark Tale, and Ocean's 12. So one, two, three, four, five of those, five of ten are sequels that make the top ten of the box office. One of those sequels is actually good, though, and everybody hates it. Ocean's 12 is terrific. It's the the red-headed stepchild of the Ocean's movies, and nobody likes it. But um, I always thought it was great because instead of just making, uh, instead of just redoing what they did the first time, they... They pretty much exploded the whole idea and and tried to do something sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? So they tried to be subversive with it. It was kind of a crazy, weird movie if you watch it closely. I wish that it got more attention than it gets. We would expect really no less from Soderbergh, right? He's exactly. not going to. He's not, if he's going to be uh, um, pressured into making a sequel, he's going to he's going to do something subversive with it and make exactly. it interesting he's for not himself. Do it just yeah. for the, he's not going to do it just for the paycheck. Right. But how, how how really sad is it, though, that Spider-Man 2 in 2004 and then 10 years later we have The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I know, 2. I know. Ouch. <laughs> Not only are there sequels and... now, there's sequels to reboots now. <laughs> and we have Passion of the Christ then and we have Noah now. Yes. Right. Wow. Noah, and don't forget Heaven is Real. Coming Heaven is soon Real. It's coming. it's coming to you on Easter. <laughs> 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 but, um, yeah, that was a... Yeah, Shrek 2 to be number one. How depressing. Seriously. But oh well. What are you going to do? Especially considering the first one sucked. And the second one was even worse. Well, yeah. It was a sequel to a shitty movie. But everybody loved it. It was the greatest thing. Is there anything else to talk about of this year? You should should talk about Before Sense a little bit. Don't you love those movies? Which one? Before Before Sense. Oh, was that this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it got a screenplay nomination and maybe something else. How weird. Oh, for some I mean, You don't have to talk about it. I just brought it up in case you wanted to. No, it's good. I mean, it's it's a, the whole series is interesting to me. I like watching them all three together. Um, it's it's funny, though. Like, I don't think of them in, in context of time that they came out. I think of them right. just in terms of their own stories. But it's great to think that 10 years later, uh, Richard Linklater is coming out with Boyhood, which is... Um, Another one of those movies that he filmed over a, a period of years, you know, to to, to kind of capture the, the trajectory of... Now that we know the story of Before Sunset, we know where it ends, it kind of takes away a little bit of the power of the second one. Um, it's still interesting and everything. It's them talking, and it's her where she became. I love the scene. My favorite scene in it is when she talks about being neurotic, when she's driving in the taxi cab and she talks about how crazy she is and, and why her relationships never work out i was just like yeah yeah i totally got you there you know and i thought it was really honest and and those movies are great because of julie delpy um and and ethan hawk and their and their uh great conversation conversational relationships that they have with each other how they can just kind of let it go anywhere i've always wondered how much of it was improvised i think what they do is they sit down and they know kind of where they're going to go but they sort of improvise it along the way you know yeah aren't they co-credited for screenplay because it because it is improvised yeah but they do sit down and they have a meeting about how they think the, the story should go and then they kind of improvise it and um before sunset yeah i like all three of them for different reasons 
Probably the last one is my least favorite because Julie Delpy really does seem to be very, very bitter by the end. And so it was embarrassing for me for a long time to admit that I hadn't seen before sunrise and before sunset. But, and I, and I didn't see either one of them until the day, but until the, the night before that I saw before midnight, I saw them like I bought, watched them back to back before I saw the third one, but that's a fantastic way to watch them, you know, to see them all together, like a six hour miniseries within a span of 12 hours for the very first time. That's an amazing thing to, to witness it really to, is. to, to yeah. watch them, to see how the, to watch them physically age before your eyes like yeah, that. For sure. It's just exceptional. I mean, they really did mm. wonderful work. They were never going to win the screenplay Oscar, though. Um, but not this year. There's just a, not last year. There's too much good competition, and and uh, it just did, things it just um, it just wasn't in the cards for them. I really hoped when they first when it first came out that it might, but I, the, the hopes for that faded fast. Yeah, I hope they're proud of what they did. I hope they're proud of their work, and Everyone that they feel be. satisfied for having accomplished something so great. Uh, and unique is that one other little movie that is really didn't make much of a dent at all that year but it was I, when i saw it it really struck me and it's one of my favorite movies of the decade is uh danny boyle's millions such yeah. a sweet little movie about the guy the little kid that finds the all the money right that's a wonderful film absolutely yeah, yeah. And that's before I really I had any idea, really. I, I had seen um, Shallow Grave, but I didn't really, at the time, I didn't associate Danny Boyle with having made that. And so I didn't, I, I, I didn't even know where he had come from. Had, had you not seen Train Spotting yet? Mm-mm, I hadn't. Okay. Train Spotting's so great. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, one we should mention quickly is The Sea Inside, because uh, Javier Bardem was in it. And in a couple of years here, he's going to be winning his own Oscar. And this is not the first big splash that he made. I think um, Before Night Falls, the Julian Schnabel film, was, I think when he first kind of fell on American radar. But I think The Sea Inside was another really big impression. It was sort of like his the, the Oscar case for him was being built at this point. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> really good, very painful, sad movie to watch. It's sort of like Diving Bell and Butterfly, very yeah. similar films, you know, um, about a man sort of trapped in his body. But he's a he's a brilliant actor. I hope that he gets the opportunity to do more stuff like that. But um, but I think that has to close us out. We're already at an hour and fifty minutes, so that's mm-hmm. that's a long podcast. And I've got to get going to prepare for Crash next week. <laughs> oh, Crash is next week. Wow, that's going to be a Crash one. actually snuck in a little bit into 2004 because I think, believe it, it premiered at the uh, Toronto Film Festival in 2004, but it didn't actually have an American uh, any American screenings until the following year. So p- people saw Crash in 2004 at TIFF, I, I believe. Yeah, and look at how... Um how Paul Haggis is on the rise here because of yeah, mm-hmm. Million Dollar Baby. So he's already starting his trajectory up, upward. A meteoric rise and meteoric fall. <laughs> More like a mediocre rise. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, cuties. Well, I guess that will do it for us then. It was a great time. All right. I'm going to go look at the uh, lunar eclipse, see if, how that's coming along. Yeah, there you go. All right. All right. All right. Have a good night, you guys. Bye, guys. Bye. You've been listening to episode 63 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week with another episode.